We return once again to the book of Hosea, to a new chapter today, uh, chapter 8, and we'll be looking at the first three verses, and I'm going to read those from my version, the New American Standard, and then I've asked Bob Mina if he would pray for the ministry of the Word. Hosea 8, verse 1, put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the, army, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. They cry out to me, My God, we of Israel know thee. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. Let us pray. If I were a screenwriter and charged to envision how this passage would be seen on the big screen, I would probably imagine a, an ancient town, dark with night, and a messenger with an envelope in his hand running through the streets, through the alleys. And perhaps he would pass houses and shops that were dark and the owners asleep. But perhaps he would also pass open doorways where inside there would be a party and people making merry and, and drinking and enjoying themselves. And perhaps he would have to steal past the, the palace and catch a glimpse of some well-dressed princes sneaking in the back door as they plotted a coup against the king. And he would sneak along the walls until he found the section of the town where he could see a single candlelight in the window above and mount the steps with as fast as he could go. And there would be an old man hunched over a parchment, writing, scribbling out with his ink, and he would hand him the letter. 
And as this was going on, the, the, the music, perhaps John Williams could write the score, or you know, maybe Daniel could, could help me with de describe the idea, but the, the drums and the, and the trumpets and the, the brass sound so that your heartbeat would race and race as the messenger raced to this man. And then he, with surprising alacrity, would get up from his stool and dismount those stairs and go to the center of town. And as the music came to a crescendo, it would come to an abrupt halt. And then he would raise a ram's horn to his lips and blow the warning, sounding the alarm. Well, I have the, the vision of the envelope of the message because... In the text, the way it's written, even I think in your English Bibles, it's kind of set up for us as a letter, as an envelope. A letter is written, but the, the, the envelope is made out of the letter. It's folded upon itself. And on the outside, as the, the old man, Hosea, gets this message from God, he sees on the outside of that letter, put the trumpet to your lips. The, the signal, this is the, the imperative to Hosea, sound the alarm. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord. And then he would open up this envelope and he would look inside and it would say, two indictments, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. And then there would be the plea and it says, they cry out to me, my God, we know, we of Israel, we know you. And then there would be the verdict. Israel has rejected the good. And on the back of the envelope, enclosing it and helping us see that it is really an enclosing envelope, the last sentence that God writes, the enemy will pursue him. This is the message, and it, it, it just happens to be where we are. But we, we heard in the reading that, that Neil read to us from Jeremiah, we, we heard the hoofbeats, did we not? We, we, we could hear the sound of the bow and the brass of the, the, the swords, the steel of the swords being taken out and sharpened and ready for war. That was the warning that was given, that Jeremiah was giving, even years after this scene that we have in Hosea. And there are times when the prophets were asked, to give a message of mercy and peace and loving kindness of the Lord. But their job also required of them at times to give a message of judgment and war. But why? Well, if you haven't been paying attention, go back and read verse, chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. You haven't been thinking that I see your sin. You haven't been calling upon me. You haven't been turning to me. All of the decadence of Israel is now has, has come to this culmination where God says to Hosea, sound the alarm. I called them and told them to turn from their sin, but they would not repent, so now comes judgment. And that's what we have in chapter 8. The first three verses is this call to, to judgment, this call to Hosea to announce this judgment. And he's 
delivering this again in the context of, of the marriage parable from chapters 1 through 3. We never, we never leave that. We always kind of have that in the back of our mind. This marriage, the intimacy of God and his people personified in, in Homer and his marriage to Go, uh, Hosea and his marriage to Gomer. And here we see, as some have called uh, Israel that as a nation, on the brink of disaster. Israel has brought it upon themselves, as we'll see in, in verses 4 through 14, their, their dangerous self-reliance. They've made a mess of everything. They've made a mess of their politics, of their religion, of their, their foreign policy, and of their own homeland defense. Sorry, kind of sounds like some other country I know. But he spells that out in great detail in those verses. But here, here is the warning. You, you've broken my covenant. You rebelled against my law. And you have rejected the good. And judgment is descending upon you. Now, there are those who try to, to come up with, well, who is the eagle? Or some of your versions may use vulture. Or some may have the, just the enemy. But the idea here is that it's almost impossible to, to, to pinpoint what exactly is here just because the language is so cryptic. But notice it is a simile, like an eagle. And some of the kings of, of uh, Assyria and the kings of Babylon were, were likened to eagles or birds of prey. Uh, and so it could be Sennacherib or, or Shalmaneser, but again, we, we don't know. But, but the idea here is that the people of Israel are, are very complacent. They, they thought that Egypt was their ally. They're, they're working on this, this arrangement where, where Egypt would come in and assist them, and so they're turned toward Egypt, but they're not keeping an eye on Assyria. And they thought that, well, wait a minute, we're, you, you call us the house of the Lord in verse 1, the house of Jehovah. And, and we see that here is, is almost, a, it, it's not the temple, it, it's not a, a shrine or someplace set apart, but it, it kind of has this global look of, it's looking at the nation of Israel, the land that God gave them as a whole, the, the people. And, and we're not thinking of just Ephraim as we did before in chapter 7, or just Judah, or just Israel, but all of, of God's people, the land and the area they gave them, the citizenry encompassed there, the kings, the princes, the priests, the citizens. But they use that house of the Lord almost as a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, they're, they're playing the race card. It is, we're the house of the Lord. And he's saying, no, because you have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law, this is coming against you. There's that because. There, there, there's that, that cause and effect here. But no one is watching. They're either asleep or they're marrying, giving in marriage, eating and drinking and making merry. But nobody is on the alert. No one is looking toward the sky. And some of you have seen it. If you've gone out west, you've, you've seen the eagles. Or even in an area where you might have vultures. There, there will be that lone one, that speck up in the sky. But nobody's really noticing because it's not casting a shadow. 
It's, it's, its eyes are keen. And the idea, like an eagle, we're thinking speed, we're thinking fury, we're thinking suddenness. That eagle's going to swoop. And that's what he's saying, sound the alarm. Like an eagle, the enemy is coming against the house of the Lord. And the indictments warrant the devastation which is coming upon them. It's almost as, as if, if God, as a sovereign ruler, he, he's withdrawn his sovereignty over them. He is, he is saying, I am removing my protection from you. The enemy is coming and he will pursue you. And so he levels the indictments against them because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. But we hear them cry out. We, we hear them say in verse 2, My God, Jehovah, we, we are Israel, right? Remember us, Israel? We are your chosen. We are your people. But God doesn't respond to them, does he? He, he rejects them in, in verse 3. Israel has rejected the good. It's almost like he's, he's rejecting out of hand their complaint as he sa- explains how they have rejected the good. But again, they've played that card. They, they say, we know you. We, as addressing God, we, we know you. But they're banking on two things. Their birth and their breeding. And Jesus addressed both in John, in the book of John, in chapter 8. He was talking with the Pharisees and they were arguing with, with, with him and, and Jesus was saying, you know, my word makes no progress in you. And they were saying, who, who are you anyway? We, we are children of God. We are children of Abraham. We were born under Abraham. He is our father. And what does Jesus level right back at them? If you were children of Abraham... Why don't you do the deeds that Abraham did? Why don't you have the faith that he did? Why don't you believe God as he did? So they were banking on their birth. But they were also banking on their breeding. And Jesus addresses that in chapter 9. In fact, the man who was born blind that Jesus healed on the Sabbath addresses that with them. They came and they chased him. Remember, they, it's kind of this strange thing. They don't chase Jesus around the temple. They chase the, the man who was healed of his blindness. The man who said, I don't know who he was or where he came from. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. And they came to him and they said, who is this guy? And he said, I don't know. You go ask him. And they said, well, you have to know because you're his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. Ah, there's the breeding. We're disciples of Moses. We, we follow the commandments. And the blind man says, this is an amazing thing. You're disciples of Moses, and you're supposed to have studied the law, but you don't know what a man who came and healed my blindness, a man who could not see from birth and made me see, you don't know anything about him? And when Jesus caught up with the blind man later, kind of took him aside in a corner of the temple and said, those who say we see are really the blind ones. But it's the one who know that they are blind. Those are the ones who will be made to see. 
And so the, the Jews here are leaning on their, their birth in Abraham. We're children of Abraham and we're disciples of Moses. Our birth and our breeding, we know you, God. And then we hear the voice of John again in his epistle, 1 John chapter 2. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. You say, I know him, but you will not keep his commandments. You will not do what he insists. You, you will not follow that which he teaches. And notice that John doesn't say they, they lie. He doesn't say the one who says he knows him and doesn't keep his commandments lies. He says he is a liar. That means he has not changed. That is his nature. It's not that he sins now and again. He is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And he says, I do not know you. You say you know me, but I do not know you. And the emphasis is on the command. We, we look at, we, we kind of miss the commandment, you know, we say commandments. But John says, his commandments. It's God speaking his words to his people. And what did Jesus say? My own know me because they hear my voice. And I can tell that you have the, no truth in you because you don't hear my voice. Otherwise, you would keep my commandments. And so they leaned on their birth and their breeding, and it happens today. I know you've heard somebody say it, perhaps you said it before you knew the truth. But, but you ask someone, in, in, particularly in our city, you know, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. And I was always taught to, to do right in every situation, uh, to do the best that I can. There's your birth. I was born in a Christian home. And there's your breeding. I was always taught to do the right thing. And God, that's not knowing. John says that's not knowing God. You can't claim that. You can't play that knowing card. And they're using the right terminology, the, the Jews are here. We know you. They're using the word as Hosea would know it, friendship with God, that, that relationship with God. And he says, no, no. Because if you really knew God, and Matthew Henry says it, I'll paraphrase it, but it, it, it was very powerful. He says, what kind of knowledge is it of God that does not cause you to act in awe and wonder and obedience to that knowledge. It can't be much knowledge at all if it doesn't move you to faith. And so we see that here in the middle of Hosea, in a little passage that says, My God, we, we of Israel know you. Hosea is preaching the gospel that Jesus preached. Doesn't it come back to what Jesus preached to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? You must be born again. Your breeding and your birth have nothing to do with it. Go back to John chapter 1. Those who are born of God, he says... Not of the will of man, not of the will of flesh, not by your blood, but of God. You must be born again. 
And so their plea here, they're, they're, as they enter on these indictments, God says, no, you do not know me as you ought to know me. Because your actions speak louder than your words. You cry to me, and you claim to know me, but your actions are that you have broken my covenant. You've transgressed my covenant, and you've rebelled against my law. And of these indictments, the, the first of the covenant, we, we think here in, in Hosea in terms of that basic relationship to the Lord. Again, Hosea is, is a book that has laid the foundation for us to think in terms of that covenant and that bond and the intimacy of marriage. And, and this is the bride price that Jehovah has paid to bring his people to himself. And he expects a reciprocal virtue or virtues in his bride. In chapter 2 of Hosea, he gives us that, that great list. I betrothed you to myself in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and compassion and faithfulness, and I expect my bride to be the same way. I expect that if, as, as I have pledged, as I have betrothed myself to you, all that I have and all that I am, I honor you. But he expects that his bride will reciprocate <laughs> In that marriage vow, with all that we are and all that we have, we honor you. He says in chapter 6, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifices, knowledge of God rather than offerings. But you have transgressed the covenant. You lack fidelity. You've gone out chasing others. Or in chapter 5, he says, You have a spirit of harlotry. You've gone out after, you've, you've committed adultery, and it's, it's an act of treachery, an act of deceit. It's as if God is saying, this is my bond. This is my covenant with which I wed you, but you're breaking it. You're severing it. And you call yourselves the house of Jehovah, but calling yourself the house of of Jehovah means that there will be a God and Jehovah honoring witness in it, and there's not. And it's if the people of Israel said, we don't want you to be our God anymore. You are no longer our God. We are no longer your people. And as a result, they have transgressed. The word literally means they went over. They went over to their sin and their hearts were joined to some other. We sang last week a hymn from John Newton, and, and, and John Newton prays and has us pray as we sing that hymn that, that there would be you know, only God upon our breasts, and then he says that there would no rival be. No rival. God will not have a rival. He will not have us have other lovers. He will have us be his and his only, and we would have him and him only. And in Matthew Henry, again, I'll, I'll paraphrase, but basically he says, an unbeliever sins. An unbeliever rebels against the law of God. But when a believer sins, it's treachery. It is saying, I am 
going to violate the faith and the confidence and the oath that I vowed that I would be true to you and you alone. And we violate his loving kindness and his knowledge when we sin. And then as if he, that's kind of the, the, you know, he could have stopped there because isn't that it? Isn't that the, the, what we see in, in Hosea? The, 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 the heartache, the, the heartbreak that he went through when, when Gomer wandered from him and said, I don't need you. I have other lovers. I will go. I will seek them. I don't want to be your wife anymore. And yet God goes on and he says, in the second indictment, you have rebelled against my law. And the law is really the way in which the relationship operates. It's really the way in order to be harmonious in our, the relationship, in order for it to be beneficial, in order for it to prosper and thrive and grow, it's the rules by which his people live. And you've rebelled against it it's not ignorance this is not a sin of ignorance but he says and we read it in the passage in Hebrews where he said I will put my law in your heart and on your mind it's like I have shared with you my mind I have in my revelation in the law it's not the do's and don'ts it's me it's my heart it's I've shared myself with you and even knowing that you've said no I reject it. I rebel against it. I will do as I choose. And so he's leveled these indictments against them. You have transgressed the covenant and you have rebelled against my law. And some take verse 3, Israel has rejected the good as a third indictment. To me, it's kind of an encompassing one. It's kind of the the final verdict. It's the final rendering of God. They have rejected the good. And again, it's very difficult to know, well, what does he mean? But all we have to do, I think, is to think about what we know about Scripture, what we know about God. Is not God good in himself? The psalmist says, Thou art good and doeth good. Or James says, Every good and perfect gift comes from where? Comes from above, from the Father of lights. He is the fountain, sometimes described in the Psalms, fountain of all good. Or perhaps he's thinking of the worship of God. Is there no greater form of good in this world than worship? Sincere, holy worship of God. It's excellent above all things. It guarantees health and safety and and blessing of a nation and of a people. But I think perhaps Derek Kidner came a little bit closer to that. I think that's part of it. But but here's how Kidner, and I'll, I'll quote him here, this is kind of how he sees it, and it made a lot of sense to me. This good is everything conscience and decency demand. Everything that it requires of us in life. He says, not only what is worth doing or what is worth having, but what is worth being. That is the good. And so you almost see that, that, that God has come from what, we, what I would least consider, you know, the covenant, that bond, that intimacy like a marriage, to the how does that relationship work, down to the nitty-gritty, the daily living of 
doing what is good, the way that the rubber meets the road, as the old Firestone commercial used to say, the way that I walk. And what they've done is they've cast it all aside. They, they've put it out of the way. But he is saying, in, 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 well, let's take the words of, of John in, in his epistle again, in that same chapter 2. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner in which he walked. In the same manner in which Jesus walked. The good walking in the good, putting all this together, walking in, yes, I'm intimately connected to Christ. I am, I am obeying the commandments. I'm observing and, and the revelation of his mind and his desires and his heart, but I'm in him, and in him I am in the good. I am in the way. We, the psalm that uh, was was read that you know that you will place yourselves in the good way robert canlish who was an 18 uh, 1800s uh, scottish preacher was writing about this this little phrase in him the one who is in him the one who knows him is in him and he says there's two aspects of sharing there there's us sharing with god with christ and there's Christ sharing with us. And I'm going, wait, wait a minute, Is, isn't it all of God? And, and the way it comes out to me, it was very beautiful. He shares with us because His grace covers our guilt. His strength overcomes our weakness. His glory ensures our salvation. He shares with us. But we also share with him. Because his interests become our interests. His triumph becomes our triumph. His joy becomes our joy. That's what it means to be in him. That's what it means to be walking in a manner in which he walked walking in the things that he walked. But again, they, he says, they cast them off. They put him aside. They rejected him. They, they basically called good uh, called uh, good an abomination. They, they said, no, that, that's not good. At least it's not good for us. We will not have any rules imposed upon us. Matthew Henry suggests that perhaps it's by degrees, and I think perhaps he's right. It may not be something that happened overnight, but if you kind of work back through that progression from the good back to the law, back to the covenant, you can kind of see what he means. That when we cast off the good, that's, that's like omission. Things that we don't do that we ought to do. And when we rebel against the law, we have sins of commission. We're committing sin against what we know is improper and immoral and not according to God's heart. And then we move on to that out and out where we say, I renounce the oath. I renounce the covenant. I am not married to you any longer. In chapter 4, verse 1, that kind of begins this section in Hosea from chapter 4 through chapter 11, where God is giving these speeches to his people through Hosea about all of the things that they have done and undone 
He says there is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in the land. Or perhaps from our learning on Sunday evenings, perhaps it could be said of them, there is no fear of God in this land. It ought to invoke in our minds that passage in Isaiah chapter 55. In verse 2, God asks through Isaiah, he says, Why do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? You've rejected the good, you've cast it aside, but, but you're spending your energy, you're spending who you are and what you want to be and how you live on that which will never, ever nourish you or satisfy you or, or bring you any good. But God says to us again, in contrast to the vanity of the world which causes us to spend our lives, our energy, our affections on that which can never satisfy, God says, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, you in your poverty, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without cost and without money. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in abundance. Incline your ear to me and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. That is the heart of God. That is what he desires even for these people. Come, listen to me. Come, buy, eat and you will live. And that is what we celebrate this morning, do we not? Where God, through Christ, has called us to come in communion. If we are in union with Christ, we come and we buy and we eat. He says, come, buy out of your poverty. I have nothing to buy. And he says, yes, because I have provided it for you. Come, buy, eat, partake, because it is of me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we discussed this verse somewhat in our discovery class, and we've had opportunity to refer to it again. But it's simply, Paul is saying, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Is he saying when you partake of, of the cup, when you partake of, of this grape juice or wine, you're declaring that you're in union with the blood of Christ. You're in Christ because of his blood. And when we partake of the bread, is it not a way of declaring to those around us, I am in union with you in breaking the bread, in partaking of the one who is the bread of life. Jesus Christ, and I am in his body, and we are in union together. And that is what we say when we partake together, when we eat of the Lord's Supper. And so I would say that Hosea would say to us, yes, they broke the covenant, and they rebelled against the law, and they cast off, they rejected that which is good. But you, 
You who know him, you who are in him, come, buy, eat, and you will live. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this message. We thank you that the message is, is clear, that we see the judgment and the, the danger that these people were in, we pray, that we might escape, that you might work in our hearts, that we might listen, that we might hear, that we might turn and obey, that we might walk in a manner in which Jesus walked, that we might partake together of this new life, this new covenant that you have given to us. And we rejoice and we are glad in it. We ask now that you would uh, just cause our hearts to be knit to one another as we partake together in the communion of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name.